All right. Well, as you've probably noticed in your bulletin this morning, the sermon title is Covenant Beginnings, and we're going to begin to look into Genesis chapter 2. To start this morning's sermon, I would like to preface it with a reading of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 21 through 32. In this text written to the church at Ephesus in the first century by the Apostle Paul, we read, starting at verse 21, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. But rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath, anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You know, lately I'm more and more convinced that this is a necessary text for the preterist community and by and large the Christian community to go back to and to remember our very foundation. This text might very well be called the foundation of what the church is called to be, the people that we are supposed to be like. This is written to a church, again, not to the person. So when it's talking about putting on the new man, putting on, taking off the old self, it's talking about moving away from the traditions, specifically in that first century, talking about moving away from the traditions of Judaism, the old covenant, you know, mentality under law and uh, the Gentiles for them to put off their idolatry and their excessiveness in sensuality and sexuality and in degrading things to move away from those things as the Christian church, to be a people that are kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. You see, the preterist movement I have often said, is on, a, is, a, is on the verge of reformation. We are the people bringing forth reformation into the larger Christian body. Amen. Glory to God. However, it also seems a lot of times we forget the very simplicity of what we are called to be, and all the learning in the world will not replace the people that we are called to be. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that if we have not love, everything else is vain and fruitless. Let us remember, we need to always go back to the simplicity of the people that we are called to be, even when we're trying to understand the more complex details of the scriptures. So vital, so needed. 
I have to say, I love the blessing of being here at Blue Point Bible Church. This church has truly discipled me, and I don't say that to, you know, puff the church up, but I say that to really stand humbled before each and every one of you. In all that Blue Point Bible Church is truly bringing forth, I say that we are on the, the verge of the Reformation, bringing Reformation into the Reformation. Catch that. Because, again, Blue Point Bible Church, the humility, the grace, the honesty, the authenticity that we see coming forth, I'm so excited to move into 2018, truly thinking through Scripture and allowing that reality to be seen in and through our lives. Thank you. I thank each and every one of you. I think, uh, you know, moving into our, our topic this morning and talking about the prophetic and the apocalyptic details that can be found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and questioning what is God doing in this text and how is he truly relaying that to the audience that you, uh, that you see there in that ancient Near Eastern world. Allowing audience relevance to flavor our understanding. I think uh, of Thursday night Bible study at Pastor Steve's house and the blessing of him being honest in the study and he had prefaced his study by saying that he didn't want to just be like how the scholars are just, you know, saying it's a temple text or it's, you know, it's this and that and not really elaborating and giving you the meat not helping you understand. How dare preachers and scholars stand before the people of God and speak over their heads and speak in ways that the church cannot understand. I repent of that personally. I thank you all for the grace and the honesty and the truth that you've allowed in my ministry for me to stand humble before each and every one of you and say that God forgive me and I repent of speaking over the heads of the saints and I would pray that everything I do from the pulpit would edify you, that would build you up and help you further understand God and being his image. May I repent of always or ever speaking over the heads or, or not further elaborating on things that needed to be understood. Thank you, Pastor Steve, for that exhortation. I think this morning of a Elder Steve Hernandez talking in our Sunday school about, you know, in looking at the details of biblical cosmology and talking about the, you know, looking at Genesis through an honest lens and, and a lot of his insights from reading through the rabbis, he said, you know, we need to stop being so neat and tidy. Thank you, Steve, because that is so true. We need to stop trying to fit everything into a box and instead allow the true understanding. You know, I, I talked with uh, Brother Ryan Cataldo this week and uh, if everybody remembers, he's the brother from North Carolina that I had baptized here in our church a couple years ago. And I talked to him this week, and he admitted humbly before me that, you know, the community, the Christian community, especially the preterist community, does not help foster clarity. Rather, when you're trying to, you know, think outside the box and you're trying to really dig into the or think through the details of Scripture, that more often than not, you're rebuffed and, you know, discouraged. May we repent of that. May we repent of trying to put everything into a neat box and instead allow the Spirit of God to speak through the Scriptures. Or as the book of Ephesians says here, that we would have a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. That's the type of people we are called to be. And I pray that as I lead my ministry forward this year and as we move closer to our conference in March, that we would become a people that ask better questions, that we would not foster polemic ideologies and not you know, desire biblical controversy to divide, but rather we would look at biblical controversy, we would be honest in the details 
And we would find ways to ask better questions of the things that we're not understanding or agreeing with. God be with us. So moving us into you know, the text here in Genesis, um, I've been declaring that Genesis chapter 1 is a temple text. Namely, what that means is that it's a text that is used in that ancient world to declare the sovereignty of a certain God, in our case, our one true God, over all the things that are listed in that seven-day temple text. And there in Genesis chapter 1 into Genesis 2-3, we see that one true God is sovereign, and he has placed his image not in a physical temple, but instead in all of creation that he has created, which is his temple. And he's created his image, his people, in there. And then he has taken up his rule and his rest by establishing that. That's what a temple text is. It's a document that would have been written on cuneiform tablets and it would have been put in this little you know, temple picture. But in our case, it's not a temple picture. In our case, it's what was being given to the covenant people. Their story, their beginning, because they were the image of God. And in our case, we're reading these cuneiform tablets that would have been passed down from legacy from generation to generation and are supposed to be used to establish the sovereignty and the method by which the sovereign God is making himself known. That's what we read in Genesis chapter 1. I had read a quote on Facebook shared by Mrs. Carrie Burks, and she said, sovereignty, well, she quoted a Puritan observation, sovereignty is the queen of all doctrines. Without a good grasp of it, we live fearful and tentative lives before the Lord and amongst men. And that is so true. And that's why right at the beginning of the Bible, the text is declaring the sovereignty of our true and mighty God. The God that worked through the lineage of Adam. The God that began with Adam as his image. The God that took up a rest and a rule for over everything in the heavens and earth. Over the seas, the rivers, and yes, uses that text in a prophetic manner. However, the text is ultimately highlighting the sovereignty of the one true God over everything. I had a great interview with Mr. Travis Finley of Rethinking Revelation um, on my podcast of Harry Ticks, the Harry Ticks Variety Show this past week. And Travis had brought the discussion into the prophetic details, the apocalyptic, the eschatological details of Genesis, showing what God intended to do with his heaven and earth. He said it points to the need. Right there he highlighted uh, Psalm chapter 102. I believe it was Psalm 102. And... Uh, how that connected to the details there in Genesis chapter 1, showing that ultimately the goal of Genesis 1 is to highlight that ultimate God was going to do something new, that this was just the beginning. Travis made a great point that I could spend a year preaching in Genesis chapter 1 alone and still probably miss half of the details presented in the text. Amen to that. And that's sort of where I'm at this morning and where I'm going to be leading our, the rest of our sermon. I've uh, taken up reading the mechanical translation, which is the Hebrew word-for-word translation of the book of Genesis. And there's truly so much there. I have to agree with Theophilus of Antioch, a second-century church father, who said, of the six days, talking about there in Genesis chapter 1, no man can give a worthy explanation and description of all of its parts. Not though he had 10,000 tongues and 10,000 mouths, no, though he were to live for 10,000 years sojourning in this life, not even so could he utter anything worthy of these things. How humbling is that? 
I agree with that statement there. I believe there's so much to unpack in Genesis. And I imagine in my sermons you'll understand that because you'll see that I've, I've been going through a multitude of study, reading anything and everything I could get my hands on to absorb that culture and that understanding and to see the different details that Genesis 1 and 2 might be pointing to. As we move into Genesis chapter 2, after establishing the sovereignty of that God and looking at Genesis chapters two, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, of Adam being placed in the temple, the image of God being placed in the temple, and uh, everything ultimately is set up for the divine rest and rule, I had shared that quote from Dr. John Walton where he says that when you're looking at Genesis and you're looking at a temple text, you see three features. You see an unacceptable condition. You see what the God is doing and ultimately how he is going to take up his rest. So what is the unacceptable condition that we see in Genesis chapter 1? Right there in Genesis 1-2, we see that un, uh, formless and void, tohu vabohu, creation. The earth is tohu vabohu. It's without vegetation as you move into Genesis chapter 2. It's without form and void. It's stuck in confusion. And it, it, what the picture we should be getting from that is to be captivated by the idolatry of the ancient Near East and the wickedness that captivated that ancient Near Eastern world. And God is entering into his creation and his spirit is hovering over the waters. I found an interesting uh, parallel there to understanding the election of God. That the spirit hovers over the waters. The waters are of the seas. The seas is a different word than the word for waters. You see, the spirit doesn't hover over the seas. The seas, again, we see throughout scripture when we look at the prophetic, we see seas is talking about the Gentiles. The spirit doesn't hover over the entire sea. This, the spirit hovers over the spirit does not hover over the entire sea. The spirit hovers over the waters of the sea, the ha-yamim, not the tehom. There's so much to be unpacked right there. And that's why I agree with Travis. Totally agree with Travis. So we look at the rest of God. So then God's spirit is hovering. And what he's going to do is he's going to elect a people that are going to be used for his glory. And that's what we read through the Law and the Prophets. And this people are going to be his image. So that's the solution that God is doing. He ultimately takes up his rest at the end over being sovereign over all those things and establishing his temple as, as all creation and establishing his image of his, as his people. Many people argue that Genesis chapter 2 verses 4 through 25 seems to be a different creation account than Genesis chapter 1. Rather, Genesis chapter 1 is a temple text declaring the sovereignty of God in Genesis chapter 2. The sovereignty of God over all things in Genesis chapter 2 is talking about the details of how God takes up the reign. An interesting detail I had read was that in Genesis 1, the purpose of Adam, the image, is more of a royal function, a kingly function, to bring forth humanity and, and reign over humanity. Whereas in Genesis chapter 2, there's a priestly function because that's the, what he's doing in the temple, securing that, creating that sacred space that we had talked about last week. We move into Genesis chapter 2. Right there in Genesis 2, 4, we read the, the account or the generations, the tall dot of the heavens and earth, which always refers to people, never to things. We see this in many other places in Scripture. I've been speaking about this more recently as a chloroform. A chloroform is a... A Sumerian tagline, a signature that would have been found at the end of a clay tablet. And a case could be made for that in understanding the tablet theory of Genesis for, you know, the many different areas you see that. Genesis 2, verse 4, Genesis 5, verse 1, 
um, you know, you, I could keep going. So we move into Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, and I'm going to go to the text here. And I'm just going to read. I'm going to catch us up on the reading here, starting at Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heaven and earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from his work, which he had done. Then God blessed, if you notice the repeat there, that's a, the uh, indication that it's a chloroform. Um, it repeats, which ancient cuneiform tablets would do at the end of them. You're going to see this again in Genesis 2.4. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all of his work, which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You see, I might have confused you, may have confused you here. I want to be clear. Um, Genesis 2.4 is the end of the cuneiform tablet. That repeat there that you see. Moving into 5-7, through seven, no... Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not set, yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth, a mist used to rise from the earth, and the water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So talking about this, no vegetation, no rain, and the Lord formed man from the dust and breathed life into him. Um, ultimately, what we see, what scholars, ancient Near Eastern scholars will bring forth is that that no vegetation picture there is in other ancient Near Eastern writings. And it represents that there is no, uh, no prosperity in the land. And uh, ultimately, we would know there was no prosperity because they were wicked and they did not have the presence of the one true God. Instead, they were caught up in idolatry. And we see in the prophets that the Lord will reward you in keeping with your idolatry. So uh, also in Wicked, I, I explained to you the, um, the Lord forming man from the dust. I have a couple articles on that if you were to visit my articles online. Um, and I explained to you that dust in that ancient Near Eastern world was symbolic of nothing, garbage. It was useless. And, uh, you know, it's not even good to be garbage because it just takes up space. And uh, dust, to form man from the dust would have been seen as a shocking thing in that ancient world. That God is now take, making his image out of the stuff that is useless and then he places in the garden, he put dust in the garden. Whoa. You see, because what that ancient Near Eastern world viewed mankind as and humanity as was nothing. Whereas the story we're reading is that God takes that nothing, that what that ancient Near Eastern world viewed humanity as, and he uses it for his purposes. He glorifies humanity. There's so much to be said about that. I actually have a chapter dedicated to that text there about the... Uh, the breath of life being breathed into the atom and ultimately how the atom becomes a living soul. urge you to read that. So we move into the garden scene here in 8 through 14, and we see that now God plants a garden and he puts this dusty man in that garden. And it's all kind of trees, the tree of knowledge, the good and evil, the tree of life. And as you see on the front of your bulletin, which we'll elaborate on in weeks to come, uh, you know, this is a picture of that temple. The flowing rivers in that text actually point to the location. That's why we would say that this comes to us from the ancient Near Eastern world, is when you look at the rivers there, namely the Euphrates and the Tigris, you, you get a location. And we know that the waterbeds have sunk in, and you know the location might be 
a bit off or questionable, but ultimately that region is being highlighted in this text. A lot of, uh, actually I think all of the ancient Near Eastern texts have rivers flowing from the temple. Again, another highlight of this being a temple text. And then the Lord puts his image in the garden to work and take care of it. I want to read to us Genesis 2.15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. This is one reason why I'm a Calvinist, because I believe that it's evident from the text that the Lord takes those that are called to be his, his image, so to speak, and he puts them in his presence. He puts them in the Garden of Eden. Adam didn't wander and find it. He didn't think it was a good idea to get there. He was placed there by God. And he's placed there, and the words that are used here, if you were to do uh, the research, you'll find that to cultivate and keep it are priestly words that are used in the book of Exodus. When you use this and correspond to, uh, to Exodus, the tabernacle, building of the tabernacle, and the work of the Levites within that tabernacle. There's so much to be said and unpacked in Genesis 1 through 2. It's, a, it's mind, mind-boggling. As we, uh, we move into the story, of course, we're going to read, and we're going to continue to do this next week, but we're going to continue to see how man is given the opportunity to free for, he's free to eat of any of the trees, to enjoy the presence of God, but not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, of course, that requires some study, and there's a lot to go into that. Look forward to sharing some of those details with you next week. And we, ultimately, we learn that if man eats of that tree, he will die in that day. And that brings us into quite a bit of discussion um, regarding what sort of death man died in the Garden of Eden. And then we know that God says it is not good for man to be alone. He creates a helper for him in verse 18. We're going to have to learn more about that helper, who that helper is, what was that helper intended to do, and what other portions of Scripture speak to the details of man being given a helper. And that should inform us of what this text is ultimately speaking about. Adam is giving names to the animals, and it shows his dominion, his taking up that kingly and priestly rule that we see being highlighted in Genesis 1 and 2 as the image of God. And then we ultimately conclude with man and woman being naked and unashamed in the Garden of Eden. And I would correlate that if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3, noting that it is a covenant-speaking text, talking about the end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New Covenant. And it, the Apostle Paul laments that we do not desire to be found naked. There's something about that nakedness we need to learn and and read about and discern. And I believe it will be informed by understanding how the Apostle Paul uses that nakedness. And also the shame. We see the Apostle Paul in his letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, a text we constantly highlight. Study to show yourself approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. The man who does so need not be ashamed. So to give you a conclusion of this morning's sermon and to get a bit preachy at the end, is that one thing we will conclude as we get through Genesis 1 and 2 is that God is sovereign and he has created his people, the Adam, mankind to be his image. Now, Adam doesn't represent all of humanity. It represents God's image in humanity. The people of God that come from that lineage of Adam or in the new covenant, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our covering. Jesus Christ propitiated the sins of the people of God so that we have no longer a need for atonement or a covering. I know I and Pastor Steve have had some good discussions in that regard. 
and the shame. Ultimately, the one clear thing we can come to as we come to a close this morning is remembering what we talked about, about Ephesians chapter 4 and the mindset of the people of God and what we are called to be. And knowing that we are in Christ, so we are covered in Christ to the extent that that the need for a covering has been removed. And we are without shame because we are studying to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth and allowing that to inform our lives and allowing that to inform our understanding. To God be the glory. I just want to close with a point from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Always stand to it that your creed must bend to the Bible and not the Bible to your creed. And dare to be a little inconsistent with yourselves. Catch that. If need be, sooner than to be inconsistent with God's revealed truth. May we endeavor to see that reality in our church, into Blue Point Bible Church. Amen? All right, let's end with a moment of prayer. Mighty God, King Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of knowing you. We thank you for the spirit that allows us to know things about you, Lord. And that if we study and we cleave to you, Lord, that we can be naked and unashamed as the picture we see in this beautiful Garden of Eden in Genesis, Lord. Lord, be with us as we endeavor forward, thinking through the scriptures and truly coming to an honest and authentic understanding. I thank you, Lord, for the vision that you have given upon our church for 2018, Lord. We thank you for the increase. We know that you are Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider, Lord. Thank you. May you continue to be glorified in and through your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.